This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. I've mentioned the idea in the last handful of episodes, the idea of poetry or art being more interesting or more lasting or more immediately accessible than something like the newspaper or just seeing what is happening on any given day. Another way of looking at that is to see what creativity can do, not uh, not in opposition to news, not in opposition to things that are happening, but in opposition to actual lies and falsehood. And one way to look at that is to read one page, one remarkable page from the historian of religion, uh, Mercia Iliade, in his book, The Myth of the Eternal Return. And he relates this story. It actually comes from uh, a Romanian folklorist. He says, just before the last war, and I believe what he means is before World War II, but uh, it could have been before World War I. This uh, Romanian folklorist went to uh, a village to record a ballad record uh, some local folklore. And this is what Mercia Iliade says. Uh, The subject of the ballad was a tragedy of love. The young suitor had been bewitched by a mountain fairy, and a few days before he was to be married, the fairy, driven by jealousy, had flung him from a cliff. The next day, shepherds found his body and, caught in a tree, his hat. They carried the body back to the village, and his fiancée came to meet them. Upon seeing her lover dead, she poured out a funeral lament, full of mythological illusions, a liturgical text of rustic beauty. Such was the content of the ballad. In the course of recording the variants that he was able to collect, the folklorist tried to learn the period when the tragedy had occurred. He was told that it was a very old story, which had happened, quote, long ago. Pursuing his inquiries, however, he learned that the event had taken place not quite 40 years earlier. He finally even discovered that the heroine was still alive. He went to see her and heard the story from her own lips. It was a quite commonplace tragedy. One evening her lover had slipped and fallen over a cliff. 
He had not died instantly. His cries had been heard by mountaineers. He had been carried to the village, where he had died soon after. At the funeral, his fiancée, with the other women of the village, had repeated the customary ritual lamentations, without the slightest allusion to the mountain fairy. Thus, despite the presence of the principal witness, a few years had sufficed to strip the event of all historical authenticity and to transform it into a legendary tale. The jealous fairy, the murder of the young man, the discovery of the dead body, the lament, rich in mythological themes, chanted by the fiancé. Almost all the people of the village had been contemporaries of the authentic historical fact, but this fact as such could not satisfy them. The tragic death of a young man on the eve of his marriage was something different from a simple death by accident. It had an occult meaning that could only be revealed by its identification with the category of myth. The mythicization of the accident had not stopped at the creation of the ballad. People told the story of the jealous fairy even when they were talking freely, prosaically, of the young man's death. And when the folklorist drew the villagers' attention to the authentic version, they replied that the old woman had forgotten, that her great grief had almost destroyed her mind. It was the myth that told the truth. The real story was already only a falsification. Besides, was not the myth truer by the fact that it made the real story yield a deeper and richer meaning, revealing a tragic destiny? Now, I love that page. Um, I first read that in 2004. This book is about 150 pages long, and those are the two pages that I have always remembered. When I read that, I think of when I was in Catholic school, and there was a young priest there, and he was, unlike all the other priests at our school at the time, he wasn't... Uh, he wasn't old. He wasn't extremely old. He had a Honda Civic. He had a cool car, and um, he was basically he was younger than my parents, and that's how you judged youth at the time. And so I would always pay attention to what he said. When I was an altar boy back then, um, I remember him telling me. Of course, I can't remember what it is now. Uh, However I had served the Mass, he said that it was flawless, and the word he used was something I had never heard before, and up until recording this, I had never been able to forget the word, but I just forgot the word. Impeccable, impeccable was it. Um, he said that I had served Mass impeccably, so I always remember that word and associated it with him. Um, I remember seeing the guy around, and he would come to block parties, and he, would, uh, he wouldn't be wearing his collar, and he would just be able to sit around with uh, the dads and the neighbors and just drink beer and uh, he was a cool guy um, and so I also remembered when he told the story of the Reformation now granted he's teaching this to what fourth fifth sixth graders I was probably in fourth or fifth grade when this happened so we can't get too in-depth about that and I don't uh, fault him for that but still I remember very clearly that he told us that 
on his deathbed that Martin Luther uh, regretted everything that he had done and he regretted uh, uh, breaking the Catholic Church into pieces and causing all of this strife. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I went looking to see if that was actually true. And of course it's not. Uh, it's, it's an expected bit of propaganda. Um, I'm sure that Protestants and Lutherans and Calvin, Calvinists had their own version of that kind of, those kinds of stories that they would tell each other uh, about Catholics. Um, and it struck me that I'm not a, I'm not a religious scholar. Uh, and it's true that uh, this priest was living before uh, the age of Google. Um, but still, uh, he got far enough to become a priest. He should have been able to tell that that was nonsense, or that at least that it sounded fishy enough that he wouldn't tell it to a bunch of kids. And to me, there's a great difference between the story, the obviously uh, wrong story that this priest told me when I was a child. And uh, there's a difference between that kind of story and uh, the stuff that feeds QAnon these days and uh, the various conspiracy theories that are consuming us uh, left and right all over the place. There's a very large difference between something like that and what I just read to you from Richie Iliade. Uh, and I think the point is, he makes the point for me, uh, the real story was already a falsification because the myth was truer by the fact that it made the real story yield a deeper and richer meaning. And I think that's really the point. Um, I think a good way to judge the value of a story that does not happen to be true in the case of myths that clearly never happened, in the case of religious scriptures that might fudge events or become uh, overlain with uh, literary patterns or just be a collation of a collection of uh, different versions of the same stories, um, so that there's no real way of discovering what the original written or spoken version of the story was. Uh, and so there's even not even a point at that, at that time of trying to figure out what actually literally happened. The point seems to be the meaning that comes from it, the meaning that is added to people's lives, the, uh, the deeper truth that is added to people's lives. So that even if you can say that a religious event did not happen, even if you can say that uh, this uh, bachelor was not killed by a fairy, even if uh, you can say a lot of things that might be immensely comforting to you, a, a family story that's passed down that may not be true down to the letter, um, that's significantly different than a lie than something that uh, yields no meaning. I think of uh, an article I just was reading about uh, how conspiracy theories of various kinds spiral out and out and out of control, and they reinforce each other. They don't, um, they don't offer meaning. They don't bring meaning forth. They just reinforce paranoia and fear 
And in the case of the Martin Luther story, even though it was not a conspiracy theory, um, what it did was reinforce prejudice. And so I think another way of looking at it, looking at it is to see that if the story is written by the people it is concerned with, you can almost always find that uh, they have found a way to make this story, whether they think it's true or not, or whatever version of it they think is true or not. Very often they will have found a way, because it is useful to them, because it is spiritually and communally useful to them, to make sense of their own lives and the lives of their neighbors and uh, the lives of, uh, or, or just of their own times, by telling stories that may or may not be true. But if you get down to the point where the story is written by a person and it is about B person, a story written by X community that is about Y community, that is when you begin or should begin to get suspicious because they're not trying to illuminate anything. It is a form of um, propaganda, you might say, all around. Um, I think that that was basically it. Um, just wanted to talk about storytelling and, in the process, read those pages from Mercia Iliade. Uh, it feels like a hint that can lead to a longer post at some point, but uh, I'll leave it at that for now on this uh, Friday afternoon. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.